I've, I've enjoyed playing here. This has been over 20 years that I've, I've been coming to Royal Melbourne. This way golf should be played. We love coming down under. Look, it's phenomenal to play. The quality of the golf's been great, but the enthusiasm of the people's been the thing that's just been amazing. Tier of courses that I'm willing to shave my neck for in Kingston Heath and Victoria. Get me out of bed to shave. Especially somewhere like Australia in the sand belt, and I have so many great memories of being down there. G'day and welcome back to Australian Golf Passport. I'm Scott Warren and I'm joined as always by Matthew Mollica. G'day, Matt. Hi, Scott. Matt, I'm really looking forward to talking about the Mornington Peninsula and the National Golf Club in uh, in this week's episode. But first we have to get to Amia Culpa from last week's episode talking about New South Wales Golf Club. And I always knew that one day all the time I spent drawing golf holes in school books would come back to bite me. And that point was last week, Maddie, when I said that Captain James Cook, who came to Australia in 1770 to have a look around and chart the East Coast, I said that he came back to lead the first fleet when it arrived in 1788. So it turns out that Cook didn't lead the first fleet in 1788. And there's a very good reason, Maddie, that he wasn't chosen for that voyage. And that reason is that he'd been dead for almost a decade at that point. So... I swear to God, in high school history, I was taught that Cook led the first fleet. Uh, and given that I went to a country state school, there's every chance I was taught that. But no, uh, thank you to Matthew Delahunty, who brought that to our attention with some great level of disbelief on his part that that I'm 39 years old and believe that. But Maddie, you you straw polled people during the week, and and I'm not the only idiot in Australia. Oh no, 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 no! There, there were there were very, very few people that uh, were on Matt Delahunty's side of the ledger. The vast majority of people I spoke with, with the exception of my son, thought that uh, Cook had in fact led the first fleet. Uh, so maybe, maybe there's an issue there for Australian history being taught in schools. Bit of a problem, and of course, so to complete the you know we're, we're an Australian history podcast now. To complete the lesson, Cook famously had an even worse experience with the locals in Hawaii than Robert Allenby did. And he was, he was killed uh, in a misunderstanding with the locals in, yeah, as I said, 1779. So it was very much game over for Cook by the time the first fleet arrived in Botany Bay and set foot just behind the 18th tee at New South Wales to get fresh water. So there we go. History lesson over. Uh, apologies, you know, for my attempted rewriting of Australian history. And of course it was Captain Arthur Phillips. Who, who actually sailed all that way with all those convicts and, and uh, arrived in Australia. So, Matty, on to news of the week. And been a bit of a legend of mates going on trips to Barney ever since Barn Boogle opened, really, that people would come back with this folklore of, oh, the bloke at the bar said he heard Sattler talking to someone about a second course and, oh, no, I played with a guy who, you know, is in the real estate industry. And he said that he'd shown them an inland site for abandoned trails type course and all this folklore. And occasionally, you know, something would come to fruition like a second course was built or, you know, for the longest time they talked about um, an OCCM course inland that was going to get built. Hasn't happened. Of course, the third course was that little uh, short course by Bill Core. So I had, I had a... Um, not someone prone to to exaggeration or creation, tell me, swore blind that he played with 
a very well-placed long-term staff member when he was at Barn Bugle a few weeks ago. And there is a private course coming that's going to be designed by Corin Crenshaw. So I did some I did some digging and I asked some questions of the sorts of people who are involved in these things and are well placed. There's a lot of people who you know have heard the idea and know that it's a concept. Uh, whether it's as close as as we're told that it might be is another matter. But you know, any time that there's chat about an an additional course at Barnboogle, you know, even if it is going to be a private facility, that's um that's exciting chat. Yeah, I, there's plenty of space down there. There's always been that chat, as you said, that something else is next on the horizon. I'd never thought of a private club, private course down there, but there you go. Hopefully it happens. Hopefully the empire expands. Well, Tasmania is, I mean, Tasmania is going nuts for new golf. So on one hand, you wonder how much how much golf can one little island sustain? But on the other hand, when when demand's booming and, and there's you know new courses bring more golfers that need more courses. Who knows? The other uh, the other thing that's happened this week, Maddie, is a pretty important date passed in Peninsula Kingswood Golf Club's story. So they are obviously a combination of the traditional Peninsula Golf Club and Kingswood Golf Club, which that course closed and merged with Peninsula some years ago. You talk us through what that what that date was this week and what it what it means, if anything, for for golf and for the Kingswood site? Yeah, Australian Super purchased the site on which the Kingswood course sat in Dingley, which is an outer suburb of Melbourne, a couple of kilometres down the road from Kingston Heath. And Australian Super brokered a deal with the newly formed entity, Peninsula Kingswood, to give them an initial payment, a secondary payment a little further down the road. And their third and final instalment on the land purchase was going to be paid sometime down the track. And it was going to be triggered by rezoning and the magnitude of the of that final payment swung in large part on the number of residential lot sales, and I think the median price had something to do with it as well. And as you were as you were suggesting, that date or that that expiration date for that third and final payment has been and gone. So Peninsula Kings would have had two payments from Australian Super for that land at Dingley, but they will now not receive anything further. And I think they were in the ballpark to receive at least $25 million, potentially more. Australian Super is off the hook in that regard now. Now, I think the locals in Dingley are claiming this great victory and that they think that this means the site's somehow not going to be redeveloped. I think that's that's naive. I think that that site has a future that isn't Parkland or Golf Course. I think from my point of view, the most significant thing about this date passing is that payment not going to Peninsula Kingswood and obviously they've developed quite a quite a high-end property you know with new clubhouses and pools and accommodation and lots of things that cost a lot of money to build and to operate the thing for me is I hope that this isn't somehow going to be problematic for for Peninsula Kingswood down the track. I imagine it would be a little strain for them Um, they're they're a large club with two courses and they've got a large membership um, we're paying annual subscriptions. But one of the planks of their initial push when Peninsula and Kingswood merged was that the sale of the land would allow the new entity to have this future fund in which tens of millions of dollars were invested and the club could draw down interest from that nest egg and, and meet their, their annual payments on all manner of things, including the course and the clubhouse. 
Uh, I agree with you that, that Australian Super have paid the, the better part of $100 million for that site thus far. The thought of Dingley residents that that land is going to sit there empty and undeveloped is probably pretty naive. Australian Super is answerable to shareholders and they've spent a considerable sum of money and they're going to want to realise a profit from that investment at some stage sooner or later. Can't imagine that it's going to sit there undeveloped forever. Uh, particularly when that southeast corridor of Melbourne is such a significant suburban expansion zone. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, I think obviously Victorians are going you know, to vote in an election next month. Controversial rezonings like this often, often occur early in a new term of government, so there's long enough for the voters to forget before they go to the polls again. I'd be really surprised if 2024 concludes and that isn't rezoned to some sort of residential future but we'll wait and see it's been as you say eight years to this point so i'm sure it's whatever happens probably isn't going to happen really quickly but we'll get there uh, and the sad thing is i guess that you know we lose a golf course we've already lost a golf course never good to see golf courses go but now that it's gone i think yeah the reality is that that land has a different use now maddie moving you know further southeast past dingley pretty soon we get to the Mornington Peninsula, and that's the subject that we're talking about today. So can you talk us through, for those of us who you know, aren't intimately familiar with Melbourne and surrounds and and the peninsula itself, where does Melbourne end and the Mornington Peninsula begin? Okay. Uh, when, you, when you look at a map and you see where the Melbourne CBD is, there's Port Phillip Bay, big body of water immediately to the south of it. Uh, the Bellarine Peninsula lies to the west and the Mornington Peninsula lies to the east. When you drive out of the CBD in Melbourne and you head down towards the Sandbelt, you head in that general southeast direction down the Monash Freeway. 25 minutes or so, you're within the heart of the Sandbelt. Another 20 minutes or so, you're at Peninsula Kingswood. And I'd really consider everything south of that to be the commencement of the Mornington Peninsula. Uh, it's a it's probably still a touchy topic for Melbournians and people who live on the peninsula, Scott, because we were subject to pretty strict lockdowns during COVID times. And the Mornington Peninsula was deemed a part of Melbourne metropolitan area. And so they were subject to the same conditions as inner city suburbs. You had people living in low density coastal areas down in holiday spots on the peninsula and they were subject to five kilometer travel restrictions and 9 p.m curfews despite the fact that they're 100 kilometers from the gpo as if they were to drive up there so now the story we were told up here in sydney at that time was that that the victorian government did that because all the great and good of melbourne have their holiday houses on the peninsula and they would just flee melbourne for morning to peninsula if that wasn't under the same lockdowns is that is that kind of a fictitious thing or is that more or less probably the reasoning i think there's a fair bit of truth to that yes <laughs> um, there'd be a lot of people that wouldn't like to admit it but yeah that's that's the truth so everything everything really south of peninsula kingswood i would consider to be the mornington peninsula you drive past frankston and then you get down to these sort of outer, outer suburban areas, Pearsdale, Somerville, Baxter, Turretin, areas that you just sort of drive through fleetingly while you're ticking along at 100 clicks on a newly constructed freeway. And then the start of the peninsula proper would really be probably Rosebud, which is a name familiar to a lot of our Australian listeners. So that's a, that's a holiday town that many people will have visited over the years. You go further past Rosebud and you get to Rye, Sorrento, Portsea, 
if you head in a slightly different direction along the peninsula, uh, a little further east, you go to places like Red Hill and you end up at Flinders. There's an array of um, towns and fields and uh, landscapes to enjoy down on the peninsula. The, the Red Hill and um, Flinders zone feels quite wooded and almost forest-like in parts, and there's a number of great wineries in that little neck of the woods. The further you head down towards the very tip of the peninsula where Portsea and Sorrento are, that, that feels really coastal. And I often think that it's probably a small-scale version of the Hamptons where you drive further and further out through Long Island and get to that more exclusive and more remote, more beachy feel at the very end. Yeah, I think there's there's some reasonable parallels. You know, the, the Mornings Peninsula are also having kind of an ocean-facing side and a and a bay-facing side like Long Island does, uh, and also just that it's, you know, it's the holiday spot, the weekend spot for for the city slickers. Worldwide, there's probably places like, you know, the Kent Coast out of London where Royal St. Ports and Royal St. George's are, you know, Fife for, for uh, Edinburgh residents, you know, Santa Barbara and Monterey for those in Los Angeles and San Francisco. There's sort of... A lot of the great golf around the world seems to exist in places that is the weekenders of the of the wealthy. And you know, when you look back at the development of golf, that's often been, you know, the people who founded these clubs were the members of the top clubs in the big cities who wanted somewhere to play on their holidays. Um, is that is that more or less the history of of golf in the Mornington Peninsula as well? Yeah, even even the little nine-holer at Frankston started that way with a few well-to-do families thinking we need a place to whack a ball around while we're on holidays. Uh, we'll get to it a little bit later, but the, the origins of the National Golf Club, uh, Huntingdale members basically formed the club back in the 80s and some of the other clubs down on the Mornington Peninsula have close ties to clubs up on the Sandbelt, clubs up in town. And and you're right, they were they were holiday golf destinations for people who were travelling to that part of the world over the warmer months of the year. What's the the atmosphere of, of being down? I mean, you've mentioned that it's quite a, you know, cosmopolitan sort of place in terms of different, different towns offering different things. But it gives me the feeling, and I've only been there, you know, much less than you on a few little golf trips, but certainly that feeling of, you can take a deep breath. You can relax. Kind of the stress of the city's behind you. It is really that holiday atmosphere. Is that is that your experience? Is that is that a fair summary of the Mornington? Absolutely. The same way that we were talking about getting closer to Barn Boogle in that episode, and smelling the air and feeling a weight lift from your shoulders and taking a deep breath and enjoying the escape. I'd I was a member at the National for more than a decade and haven't visited for a while and and long since gave up my membership down there but I I can still feel that sensation of uh, release and enjoyment the closer that I would get to that front drive of of the National Golf Club and and several other clubs down in that neck of the woods it's it's a great place to visit and for those who are fortunate enough to do it on a really regular basis or they have a holiday home down there they they must just love it. It seems to have really come along in the last 10 years or so too. The first time I visited was 2011 uh, and I was last there right before COVID hit. And just the just the little microbreweries, um, St. Andrews Beach Brewery, not an ad, but an ad. It's really great. You should go and check it out. Like really 
new places, great food, uh, good bars. There's some wine bars that have opened up down there. It didn't seem to have that much, I guess, kind of nightlife beyond your traditional Aussie pub and neighbourhood Italian restaurant, et cetera, when I was down there 10 years earlier. There's definitely a lot more of that now. There's been a huge influx of money over the last decade with masses spent on real estate, and I think that that's probably only grown in the last three or four years with people realising that they can work from a country retreat in Red Hill or they can go and stay down at the beach and log into the office every day and take a surf break in the middle of the day should they wish. So there's a hell of a lot more activity down there. There's probably a greater permanent resident rate down there as well. More expenditure on uh, infrastructure on the whole peninsula, more more investment in business down there too in that hospitality sector, you're right. Yeah, it's, um, it's certainly a really lovely place to go and visit. And it's funny, your, your descriptions then reminded me that um, during those lockdowns, Mike Clayton made the peninsula look really appetising, playing beach golf, you know, places deserted. You'd open Instagram and there'd be just a photo of, you know, 15 golf balls on the beach and a nice little divot pattern in the sand. And it, it's certainly that idyllic, that idyllic lifestyle coupled with you can get a good coffee and a nice beer and something great to eat. Uh, and then as we're about to get to some of Australia's best golf as well, that's a pretty, that's a pretty fantastic place to include on an itinerary. Uh, and for the Aussie Aussie listeners as well, you know, we've talked previously about weekends away. There's, you know, whether you're from Melbourne or you're from further afield, there's not many better places, I think, for a weekend away if you want to combine great golf with the other things that make a good weekend away. Well, for someone travelling just to the state of Victoria from overseas for a golf trip, they could spend the vast majority of their time down on the peninsula if they came with their family. And there's, there's all manner of different things for a non-golfing spouse and and young kids to do on that peninsula there's native wildlife sanctuary down there there's national park walks there's peninsula hot springs there's great places to go and eat there's child-friendly beaches on that bay side of the peninsula as you said there's more rugged windswept beaches on the Bass Strait side there's galleries there's cinemas there's zillions of different things to do down there and so if you were to sprinkle one or two sandbelt rounds on top of a lot of golf on the peninsula you could um you could play some fantastic courses and you can serve a few masters while you're doing that now at the risk of definitely getting into australian history territory again how would halt the australian prime minister who disappeared at sea while swimming that was on the mornington peninsula wasn't it yes it was was it chevio beach and when you drive past Portsy Golf Club and down into a national park right on the very tip of the Mornington Peninsula, that's a national park and you can see, um, you can see remnants of the, of the military presence on the peninsula. That, again, is a very strategic point. Um, no doubt our, our leaders of the day wanted to stop ships entering Port Phillip Bay and making their way up to the, the Melbourne city. Uh, Holt used to holiday down in that neck of the woods, I don't know what would ever have possessed him to swim at that spot. I walked down to the very end of the peninsula a couple of years ago on a day trip and looked over Cheviot Beach and thought, not if there was a million dollars in a dinghy, would I get out into that water? But yeah, he went he went for a dip down there and, and was never seen again. And I hope that Matt Delahunty is listening to this, nodding his head in approval and saying, yes, I concur with all of those historical points. Well, uh, Matty, while you've been speaking, I opened up, I opened up Wikipedia and I was I was checking and you hit every mark, mate. So full full points to you. 
Um, and it is pretty, it's pretty Australian, I think. Uh, and a few foreigners have said this to me when they've heard the story that, you know, our prime minister could just go for a swim and disappear and never be seen again. You know, no security with him, no, you know, no checks and balances, just ducking in for a dip on his own yeah. uh, at a pretty dangerous spot. And then we, we think nothing of perpetuating the myth that he was hijacked by Japanese submarines. You'll find that if you keep going down the Wikipedia page. Or I'm that sure. he defect, I think, defected to Russia was yes. the other one that was another gone rumor. around. Yep. Uh, and there's, but- there's, there's also, there's a public pool in suburban Melbourne that is named after Harold Holt. And <laughs> the, the juxtaposition of naming an aquatic facility after a prime minister who's died presumed drowned has never yeah. ceased to amaze me. But anyway. But so uh, rugged beach where Holt went missing, we go a bit up the coast and we hit a bit more rugged land where the National Golf Club uh, came into existence in 1988 with uh, the old course, Matty, by Robert Trent Jones Jr. Yeah, there were there was a group of golfers at Huntingdale who uh, coined the term a new direction in Australian golf. Trent Jones built, or Trent Jones Jr., I should say, if it refer to him by his appropriate name. He built two courses down there. He built a public 18, which has passed through the hands of many owners in the subsequent decades. It's now the domain of the RACV or the Royal Automobile Club of Victoria. They have a resort there that encompasses those 18 holes. And Trent Jones Jr. also built 18 holes for the National, which now with the expansion of that club, building additional courses in subsequent decades, uh, Trent Jones' course is referred to as the old course. And, And you're right, it opened in the 80s. The National was the country's first equity-based or share-based membership club. And that existed obviously for a while in the US and I think other countries as well. But the National were the first ones to make a go of that model in Australia. I think it took them five, six years until such time as they had a full subscription of 750 members and got into a position where they owned the freehold. There'll be a lot of people that have joined the National in more recent times that have been lured by the other courses but for their long-time members that old course is is something mystical it's very different to almost every other course in the country uh it's got a character all of its own as we'll explore in a second it's, it's over some pretty amazing terrain it's dramatic it's difficult it's windswept it's big it's bold it's a little iconic of its time you, you mentioned that trent jones jr designed it in the 80s and it was really the only course that filled the upper echelons of Australian golf layouts that wasn't designed in either the first or second golden age. It's polarizing at times. I've always found it to be a wonderful course. It's um, it's funny now, you know, it's a hard course now and you look at the 1988 opening date on it and I can't imagine, you know, the, the challenge it must have offered playing with Persimmon and Ballada. It would have been brutal. I I think the ball that I would have used when I first joined was probably a Maxfly Revolution, and I would have had something like a Big Bertha driver. Don't think I had a 975D. I would have had a, a Big Bertha driver. So I had steel. Um, those back tees haven't gone back very far, if at all, on any of those holes. Uh, they, they play it forward for the vast majority of the time. Uh, for member play day in, day out. But yeah, spinny ball, softball, small-headed wooden clubs. Yeah, some of those members would have been sadists. They would have blown me away. I mean, 
I think too now. So it's been re it's been rerouted when the clubhouse moved. But the holes that are known as the third through the fifth now, of course, were the sixteenth to the eighteenth under the original routing, and those are three ball buster holes uh, that finish with you know a short uphill par five that has a green that looks like the ocean that Harold Holt disappeared in. It's um, gosh, some cards must have got torn up. You know, you're cruising through fifteen holes, and then those three eat you up. Um, they're still tough as three through five, but that that course also, you, know, you mentioned when it was developed, it was something completely unlike anything else in Australia. And I think really to be fair to it, it's still completely unlike anything else in Australia. I think uh, Robert Trent Jones Jr. has a style really, you know, of his own. It's quite a singular piece of land up on the cliffs there. There's really nothing else that comes to mind that that I think is similar. And that's that uniqueness, you know, is hard to look past. And of course, the par three seventh hole, you know, is one of those, one of those holes in Australian golf that everybody knows, even if they don't know it. They know the picture, even if they don't know the hole. Uh sort of this par three in the clouds that plays across a gully to a a green sort of shaped like a shaped like the number eight. Uh it's really that's one of those on a on a great day standing on the seventh tee with with your mates. It's one of those hard-to-beat holes on on a course that people have misgivings, but no one forgets that they played the old at, at National. Oh, no. It, it, it leaves a lasting memory. It's, it's, a, it's an ultra-scenic place. It's more forgiving than people think. People see tea tree, just ball-swallowing tea tree left and right, but there's fairways that are 90 yards wide out there repeatedly. You can play it even in quite strong winds. It can be manageable. If you try and do too much or you're not that great a player or you really spray it left and right, you can you can rack up Bradman-esque scores out there. But yeah. it, it, it can be manageable as well. Talking about its design, you, seven is one of those greens that demonstrates this uh, design approach. And you see it all throughout the round on old. It was one of the first courses that I saw that really demonstrated this greens within greens concept. And sometimes a putting surface at the national on the old course is subtly divided. Sometimes it can be quite stark, like a hog's back. And you'll think, oh, well, I can tell that's one part and that's the other part. And I've got to be over there. If I hit my approach into the wrong portion of this green, I'm going to have to negotiate that. And I'm definitely staring at three putts. Sometimes it's not super artful the way in which that's done but it's extremely effective. And if you said to me, well, the overall topography on which that course sits is pretty dramatic. And so it only really makes sense that the curves within those putting surfaces are similarly pronounced and dramatic. I'd, I'd, I'd listen to that argument. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. And I think that type of golf lends itself to people hitting a lot of approaches really close and making birdies and having a great time. It also lends itself to people thinking that they've hit, you know, a good shot and got an unfair bounce. So I think there's that polarizing aspect of it. And certainly what you're describing, you know, it's similar to what I talked about with New South Wales last week, that you play it enough and you learn where the shortcuts are and you learn not to hit it here, even though it looks okay. And you learn that, oh, well, you know, I can miss it 20 yards right and it's going to feed down the hill. And I like that with the members club that it does reward someone who plays it a lot and pays attention to it. I always, when I think about old, I think about, we like to think that we go and see golf courses and we have this really clear view of what's good and bad and we can see a lot. I think that that experience really driving your day at the old 
I've played the old only one time and I've always sworn I need to go back and play it again. I played it with someone who was not having a very good time uh, and they were sort of letting everyone in the group be very clear that they were not having a very good time. It's funny that colors your experience. Um, you know, I wasn't playing my best golf, but it was, it's when you think about, you know, the courses that you love the most, um, particularly beyond the highest rated ones, often you think, well, those are the courses where I've had the best days and the most enjoyable experiences. Um, so I think old, old definitely is going to make everybody feel things. And that's, you know, I, even if I walk off a golf course and I walked off old a little bit, you know, this hole was great, but muttering about some others, I'd rather walk off that than just walk off and think, you know, someone says, oh, what do you think of the fifth hole? Oh, I can't remember it. Can't remember any of the holes because there was nothing really to, you know, identify them. Certainly every hole on on the old course at National is very striking and identifiable, even when it goes inland into a bit more sedate terrain, the bunkering and the green shapes and some of the quirky stuff that that's been done there makes those holes stand up, you know, alongside the likes of seven and, you know, 17 that are like roller coaster rides. Yeah. Um, probably should recognize Bruce Grant, who uh, great mate of Clates and from a very famous golfing family, Graham's brother. He did a lot of the construction of those bunkers back when National Old was built and, and then refined a little in its early days. I think Tom Doak shouts out old for special mention for their hazards, for their their appearance and their construction and their placement towards the tail end of um, in that Gazetta segment of the of the original confidential guide. You very quickly see why when you visit the course. They're big and imposing and they're in the right spots and they're artfully constructed and they have this amazing windswept aesthetic to them that is super appealing. Yeah. What's your favourite hole on old? Uh, probably seven, the little par three. It's just a do or die moment, but it's just such a tremendous spot. Uh, used to fantasise that I'd buy the block of land that sat behind that black tee many years ago after a lotto win. Someone's beaten me to that, unfortunately. Uh, short par four twelfth on the back I really like. There's sort of a sideways beer, it's green on the 11th hole, which is a big up and over. You drive over a rise and then tumble down to this green that's like a beer, it's but on its side. So there's three distinct portions to that green with a lower central segment. Um, I like the first. And as you said, the course numbering, the sequencing has changed. When it was, uh, when it was originally played, uh, the hole that you start, you, that, that seventh was the second hole of the day played a short downhill par four first and then you came to that par three which now is the is the seventh it was originally the second which is quite early in the round to hit such a crescendo you know the flow of the flow of getting to the oh my god moment after one hole is is possibly not is possibly not what you would maybe want and obviously clubhouse sites determine a lot about golf courses and aren't always you know where they would ideally be. Maybe that was the case with this, with that initial clubhouse site. But I don't I like that that moment there and then onto the onto the next tee box with the view down over the cliffs and into into Bass Strait. I like that coming after an hour and a half of of doing battle with the course rather than so early. 
Definitely. I'm, I'm of the same mind. The the one difficulty with that resequencing and the shift from the old clubhouse location to the new, when you start your round on old these days, uh, you meet what used to be 16, 17, 18 as three, four, five. And the whole leading into that stretch is no snack either. And I'm sure that there's guys who walk to the fifth tee and think, oh, well, my day's over. And so that that, that can be a little tough to take at times, but... Them's the breaks. Now, with the addition of Gunner Matter and Moona, which we're going to get onto now, I feel like the old, you know, a lot of people are going down, you know, they're either on a weekend away, maybe they're down for the day from Melbourne. There's quite, I'm told by members, a lot of people are playing 36 in a day. I feel like old is the perfect, a few beers after lunch match play course. If your ball ends up in your pocket on three or four holes, it doesn't matter too much. There's some low percentage, high enjoyment shots you can hit. It sort of feels, it feels like that to me is where I would, that's where, that's how I would engage with old. I certainly wouldn't have a a scorecard anywhere near me to go out and enjoy it, you know, the most that I could. Yeah, I reckon the infrequent visitor is probably better doing that. They'll go walk Gunnamatta or walk Moona and have a national burger for lunch with a beer or two and then, They'll probably hop in a cart and scoot around old with someone that hopefully knows it really well and can and can sherpa them through and hit yeah. some fun shots and chuckle at the at the shots that they never see again. Yeah. Now you mentioned the National Burger. I think it's important that we take a bit of time to celebrate the National Burger. The National Clubhouse may not be the most aesthetic building in the world, but inside it is probably the best thing I've eaten at a golf course anywhere. That burger, and there's a there's a little national burger for those who don't have as big an appetite. It's the same burger, smaller. Genuinely an incredible, an incredible burger. Do recommend, don't look at the menu, just get a Nash burger. Yep. Can't fault you with that suggestion. It's my go-to every single time I'm down there now. So we move on, Matty, to the year 2000. Uh, and... Two courses opened at that stage. Uh, the one that remains is the Mooner course. And that was designed by Bob Harrison, uh, Greg Norman Golf Course Design. And, you know, the reason that I kind of, I guess, call Bob out is, you know, Greg Norman Golf Course Design is obviously, you know, a brand and there's a lot of different people who who have courses under that, that umbrella. I think Bob's courses in my mind, are quite noticeable in in the Greg Norman repertoire versus some of the courses that have been done by other associates. You know, it may well be, I think, before the Ardfin course that that Bob's just built, you know, on a remote island in Scotland that's essentially a private course like Elliston. Um, I think a lot of people would probably say that, that Mooner is Bob's best golf course. Yeah, I think so. I think so. He'd probably, he'd, he'd definitely have it in his top tier of designs that he's ever done. And you're right, when people, particularly in the US, think about Greg Norman design, they're probably a bit lukewarm and they're probably considering courses that Bob's never worked on. They're probably the the, the product of a of an in-house US design within his firm at that time. I think Mooner is, is to me, it's incredibly Australian. It's a bit unrefined. It's severe. It's rough around the edges. It's adventurous. You go on you go on an adventure when you play Moona. Yeah, you know, I talked talked previously about 
I love a routing that takes you to different places and over landforms and you really go, you go somewhere and come back. Muna does that. It takes you on essentially a kind of a U shape out to the, the middle of the course and back. And there's greens right along the journey that are built on these really severe landforms. They've got these really rustic bunkers kind of hacked out of hillsides, green shapes that, you know, are pretty aggressive in their own right at times. And it's it's an incredibly brave golf course. You know, given that it came in 2000 when there wasn't a lot that had been built in that second golden age by that point, and it was really a significant course for a significant club in Australia without much to rely on ahead of it or to soften people up or prepare them for it. It's really an incredible result that Bob came out with. Yeah, that that land that it sits on, they've really done that justice. If I can go back a step, one of the things I was going to say, when the National was an 18-hole facility, members used to be on the most westerly portion of the property. They'd be on a, a par 5T and they'd look out west over this land that Tom Doak describes as undulating sandy pasture land. And the locals refer to that as cups country. So it's sandy, windswept, separated from Bass Strait by a thin strip of Mornington Peninsula National Park and then the beach. And it was really just grazing land. And the club members used to think, oh, we've got to get our hands on that. And so the club eventually expanded from a one-course 700-member model to a 2,000-something 54-hole model after they acquired that 700-and-something hectare site from a, a Mornington Peninsula grazing family back in the, in the 90s. One of the courses put there at that time was the Ocean Course by uh, Peter Thompson's firm, TWP. And as you said, the Moona course was designed by uh, Bob Harrison and Greg Norman's firm. And Moona, Moona is the name of a coastal tree endemic to that site. They're very slow-growing, tortured, windswept coastal trees down on that part of peninsula, sort of individual to it, much like Monterey Cypress are to the Monterey Peninsula. And so the course takes its name from those trees. And it's it's not to be confused with Moona Lynx, which is a 36-hole facility further down the peninsula that was designed a couple of years later by uh, Thompson Wolveridge Parrot. The, the Moona course at, at the National is yeah, distinctly different and distinctly better. <laughs> and there's some, there's some enormous land there. You know, it's old gets called the bold piece of land in the club, but on holes like six and eight and 16 at the Moona course at National, you walk up and down some 50, 60 feet landforms that the golf just hits straight on and goes over the top of. It's really, oh, yeah, it's really dramatic it's, land. It is a, it's built on a big scale and the scale of those hazards and greens and other, other built features really work well. It's this good proportion to the way that the course is designed. And there's a number of times, as you said, where you're walking along and you want to snap a moment on course for Instagram, all you see is fairway and sky or a huge rise and a tiny bit of vegetation and the clouds above. It, it's a big piece of undulating property. And if you carry your bag, you, you walk up from the 18th green into that clubhouse and you, your quads and your glutes know that you've been on a journey. Yeah, it, it's a hell of a walk. And there are a lot of people that are prone to comparing National Old to New South Wales Golf Club. I see more of New South in Moona. You know, it's that the the big and brawny up and over shots that are only borderline reasonable and the walk, you know, you you know that you're going over 
some crazy land because yeah, as you said, your legs and your and your butt are telling you. Yeah, that's that's in many ways you're right. Moon is probably a better comp to to New South Wales. You attack a few dunes head on. Uh, there's a there's a fantastic diagonal ridge in the third fairway, and you can aim right and not engage with it and hit into a a vast fairway, but you've got a, a really long and more difficult second. You attack the ridge with the tee shot and thread it down the left side and you're rewarded with a far easier approach. You drive over tumbling land on four, try and smack it over a massive rise on seven on a par five that's reachable if you get a great drive away. Huge blind drive where you just use the stone to align you on the par five twelfth. And then, yeah, the, the big features continue all the way to the clubhouse, 14, 16, and so on. And that closing stretch too being played into what can often be a stiff prevailing wind, that's um, that's a hell of a way to finish. The other thing that's worth uh, mentioning is is the work that Lee Yanner and his staff do down at the National. Moona gets an awful lot of traffic. And in that peak time around Christmas, New Year, school holidays in that warm part of the year, it, it gets huge traffic. And it looks in tremendous condition, 52 weeks of the year. Gets cold down there, can get warm, gets lots of foot traffic. There's some people who play it that don't really take care of the course as well as they should. And, and Lee and his staff do a tremendous job. Those greens putt beautifully. The fairways are always well presented. Now, Moona's a, Moona's a composite turf of of cooch and fescue isn't it yeah when when norman first signed the contracts to design and build he had proprietary grasses laid down over the course as a part of that deal he had from what i remember a ct2 cooch or a gn1 cooch and it didn't really perform super well didn't really like the cold was a bit thready and they've oversown it since and it's much better for that oversow yeah, it's definitely one I've I've visited it through a different few different times a year, and it's it's always when one when one of the turfs isn't isn't thriving, the other one is, and there's always always a good mat under the ball or there. So we move next door uh, to where you mentioned was originally the uh, Ocean Course by Thompson, Wolveridge, and Parrot, and several years ago the club decided they were going to replace that matty with with a new golf course. Yeah, Ocean was always a polarising course. It was difficult. There wasn't a great deal of artistry in either its routing or its green complexes or its bunker construction. Within the first four or five years of the course, I think that the club had modified at least half a dozen putting surfaces, maybe nine. There was a select group of the members that really loved the challenge that Ocean provided, but by and large, it got the least play of all three of the, of the courses down on the club's Cape Shank site, which was a little at odds with it in many ways because there were no forced carries. It was quite wide. You had number of tees at grade. You had greens that weren't as fiercely guarded by greenside hazards, so it should have been a course that enjoyed more play on the more difficult weather days. And it should also have been a course that was more manageable for the less able golfers as well. And it didn't really turn out that way. So the club engaged Tom Doak and, and, and Renaissance Golf to, to reinvigorate that parcel of land, do something different with the course. And they've stuck to some corridors for some of the holes, but it's essentially a brand new golf course and I think the vast majority of people would say it's an infinitely better golf course. It's arguably the best golf course on the Mornington Peninsula, and I think it sits pretty comfortably within our country's top 10. 
Yeah, I can't disagree with that. I think it's it's just a golf course that is completely appropriate for a windswept spot. It's on some really shapely land, and it's a it's a golf course that makes great use of that land. The bunkering and the and the greens are magnificent, but it's the landforms that I think really make it a really fun golf course to play. You know, feeding shots off off slopes is a legitimate way to play the course. You know, there are some courses where there are slopes that can feed, but there's really no need to do anything other than hit it to the flag or whatnot. At Gunner Matter, you know, there really are a lot of holes where those shapes matter, you know, and they're going to get you to a spot where your golf ball otherwise can't get. And I think of holes like, you know, the short par four second, uh, the short par four seventh up the hill to a to a green that's like a castle and a moat. It's some stuff that even even I think in in Tom Doak's Renaissance Golf's portfolio, which is pretty varied, it really stands on its own. Uh, and I know Tom has said that he set him and his team a challenge building that course. And it was Brian Schneider and Clyde Johnson who were kind of the lead crew building the greens and the bunkers uh, with some help from Brian Slornick and Mick Henderson. He set them a goal of building that course with the minimal amount of greenside bunkers possible. And I think that land that it's on enabled them to do that without sacrificing any interest or challenge. It's far more of a of a topography driven course than the ocean course was. You really had target golf. Hit it here. Can you hit it here? Can you hit it here when you were playing ocean? And now you talk about choose your own adventure golf, use the slopes, uh, talk about divergent lines with different tees, oh, sorry, with different pins and different winds of the day. And there's there's huge difference in in rounds from one day to the next on that course, which is is a is a fantastic asset. But then it's some of the it's some of the less quirky golf that that I really find myself enjoying there. There's some really traditional longer fours. The fourth hole is is an uphill long par four that that's probably going to be a driver and a long club. You know, nine and ten, you know, up the hill back towards the clubhouse and then back over over a quite a risk reward angle drive. And then 14 again is a long par four up the hill. They're quite traditional holes on a course that's full of quirk, but it's almost like those are your those are your respites from the quirk, but they're not respite holes. They're incredibly demanding golf holes. They are. There's there's little tests sprinkled throughout the round. Can you hit a long iron? Okay, you might have scored some points or racked up a birdie here and there on some of these shorter holes, but now I'm going to ask you a more stern question. And I, I love that character. There's some stuff there too that you would never see unless it was pointed out to you by someone who knows the course well. I, My first time around the course, I got to the 15th, which is an uphill short par four, and there's this thicket of trees that's you know, about 100 metres off, off the tee over to the right. And I was playing with a member who pointed over there and said, hit it over those trees. I look up at the fairway on the left and I thought, okay, well, there's obviously something going on here. And so I hit a drive over there and couldn't really work out what was going on. And when we got to the ball, you know, there was almost like the sun came out from the clouds and, and lit the path, the perfect angle, you know, to this left pin with a backstop behind it, you know, a valley around the hole. I probably could have played that hole 20 times before I realized that was over there and available to me. It's one of those things that again is a real a real treat when you get to truly discover a course over multiple plays that those options exist and it's really a testament to the genius of these blokes that build these courses that they imagine those things and they see those things 
you know, see those possibilities because it's easy to play it once it's there and think, oh, of course, that's such a great idea. I've been out on a few golf courses in construction and listen to architects describe what they see. And I look up and I just think, I can't, I can't I see that. Don't see that. But then the hole opens and you remember their words and you're like, yeah, they they can see something the rest of us can't. Um, and it's it's quite incredible. The other really interesting thing for a lot of a lot of golfers who would have been members at the national for a while, or people who have played it, not not necessarily members, but played it periodically throughout the last 15 years. If they go back and play Gunnamatta and they look at problematic areas of ocean or bits that they didn't necessarily like of ocean or really severe elements of the land on which the course sits, and then they now think, oh, this is how Doke negotiated this bit. Oh, this is how he got around this little pocket. It all makes more sense and it's all more manageable. It's all a bit more cerebral and artful and yeah there's a reason why we keep going on about him all the time courses like gonna matter just confirm that he really is something now there is there is a bit of a work in progress with gonna matter in regards to 17 is a fantastic little short par four drivable but probably not one that you're sensible to drive uh looks out over the ocean late in the day with the sun low in the sky it's it's an incredible incredible spot However, when you do hit that driver off the tee that you probably shouldn't hit, if you tug it 30, 40 yards left, as some people I want to do, it's going to land on the 18th tee. Uh, and I know the club's a work in progress trying to solve that puzzle. I was thinking, Matty, about the free pass that old courses get because a lot of these teething problems were resolved 70 years, 80 years before any of us were born. Um, but for new courses, I think it's interesting to watch how clubs unpick those challenges. And really every every new course I've been aware of that's open, there's something that doesn't function in practice the way the architect hoped in construction. It'll be interesting to see how, you know, that the potential to solve that problem impacts changes to potentially 17, 18 and the first hole. It's going to be interesting to see how they how they fiddle with it because in a vacuum, those are three magnificent holes that really add a lot to the course. Changing any of them is going to impact the round. Yeah. I don't know how they don't know how they do that. The golf is waiting on the 18th tee sort of concealed from view of those driving on the 17th tee. But as you say, if you hoik it left and get a good piece of it, those guys are in danger. They don't know they're in danger. The, the guy who's driven it can yell for because he thinks he's going near a tee, but he doesn't know that there's someone there on the receiving end. Uh, they will do something. I'm sure Greens Committee down there have spoken with Tom and thought about moving a green, moving a tee, changing 17. They'll, they'll do something, but it'll be interesting to see what they do. Certainly what they've got there now, Matty, with the 54 holes is three golf courses that are all worth playing three golf courses that have their own distinct character, three golf courses that ask for quite diverse styles of play and approaches, give you three completely different experiences. I think it's really, you know, a polite golf clap for the powers that be at National because they've delivered something that's really quite extraordinary that those three courses all stand on their own two feet um, and will appeal to different people 
for different reasons, appeal to the same people for different reasons, whether they're going down to test themselves, you know, and try and cut a score, whether they're going to have some fun, you know, whether it's a bluebird day and they just want to have some beautiful views. There's something very different to all three courses. Yeah, and that's it's probably harder to achieve than we realise, particularly with the two newer courses sitting on such similar parcels of land and sitting right next to one another. It must be a tremendous asset for all those members. And and we we haven't mentioned as yet they they the club do have a fourth course, Long Island. So the Long Island members joined with the national or merged with the national a few years ago. Long Island's on the outer fringes of the peninsula, and so that's a little more sheltered, non-coastal. And I think it's the I think it's the course that gets the most play out of the four in the portfolio of the club. So there's a there's a, a wealth of options there for those guys. No wonder their membership list's full. And obviously, there's been regular reports over the last five years or so of of national talking to sandbelt clubs as well about potentially a fifth course on the sandbelt that will become part of the national portfolio to date those those conversations have all ended without a deal being struck but already those members of that club have a pretty great array of golf available to them now maddie we're gonna we're gonna have a part two i guess of of us looking at the mornings of peninsula because there's an incredible amount of golf that is available on the peninsula private golf public golf golf that dates to the first golden age courses that have only opened, you know, in the last handful of years. So much more than we can fit into one episode. Uh, of course, Tom Doak has a second course at St. Andrew's Beach that we'll, we'll dedicate some time to in that episode. So before we move on from the National, any any thoughts or...? I think this episode and the next that we use to focus on the remainder of the Mornington Peninsula will really flesh out how important it is to visit that part of the country if you're coming on a golf trip and how family friendly it can be as well in terms of places to stay, we haven't really touched on accommodation options too much in this in this episode, but we will when we talk about the, the wealth of offerings elsewhere on the peninsula in the next episode. I think that's a good point about this is a place that golfers who come to Australia or visit Victoria should absolutely prioritise seeing to the extent even that you play a couple of less sandbelt courses to get down on the peninsula and see some variety. I think you do yourself an absolute service by doing that. You're going to see courses that are completely different. Uh, you're going to see some stuff that's bigger and more dramatic maybe than the sand belt, but still very high in golf. And there's, they're capable of delivering just as wonderful an experience and just as great a memory as some of those other courses closer to town. You're right. Well, I look forward to another chat uh, about the rest of the morning peninsula, Matt, but thanks for your insights on this one. As someone who knows National as well as you do, it's been good fun. Yeah, really enjoyed talking about it and, and keen to touch on the rest of the golf and everything else in that region when we next have a yarn scope.